0: Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Eliza Factor. She's the author of two critically acclaimed novels, The Mercury Fountain and Love Maps. She and her husband have three children, the oldest of whom is multiply disabled. Her newest book, Strange Beauty, is a memoir. It's a unique and beautiful story of how one woman was transformed by her child's inability to talk and how she, in turn, transformed a community. I had a great conversation with Eliza. I hope you enjoy it half as much as I did. I give you Eliza Factor. Eliza, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having
0: me. Uh, It's my pleasure. You've written a memoir called Strange Beauty, which is about your experience parenting a child with autism and some developmental challenges. But it struck me in reading it as just a story about the nature of accepting human limitation.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad that that's how it came across. Yeah.
0: Was that your intent? Because, because I, I think you. I mean, I would say this is a book for everybody.
1: Oh, um, yes. Um, my intent actually was to write a book for a general audience about disability because, um, I guess, when I had Felix, I hadn't really thought much about what we call disability because it wasn't really in my in my World, I you know I I didn't realize how segregated we all are until I had a child like Felix. And you um, talk about that
0: in the intro, right? About this uh, about someone who, uh, in the initial phases, as you're thinking through some of the stuff, had said, had told you about his disabled brother, and you have this really moving piece in the the early in the book where you talk about what counts as an ability (laughs) and what doesn't, and how do we how do we quantify or qualify
1: people into these
0: neat camps that
1: that's exactly right. When, when I was, when I was realizing that, you know, my son was going to be classified as moderately to severely disabled throughout his life. I mean, that's kind of like what the neurologist told us. And I was confronted with this child who had these bright eyes and this funny laugh and was teaching himself how to move, even though his body didn't work like my body. And I was just like, what, what do they mean? Like, at home he didn't seem disabled he seemed like this funny character that was exploring the world and um you know entertaining jason and me and um and making us see things freshly uh but you know outside he got this had this label disabled on him and at first i really um resented it i just it sounded like it um minimized his his being and then I started thinking about what disability means it just means the opposite of ability something you can't do and I mean obviously there were lots of things that Felix couldn't do he couldn't he couldn't sit up straight for more than five minutes he couldn't walk unassisted um you know he he either he can't or he chooses not to he's a lot like Bartleby the Scrivener um (laughs) you know, communicate with in in English or in in signs, um, in a conventional manner. Uh, so there was tons he can't do, but there's also tons that I can't do. And, um, you know, he made me much more aware that we all have these things that we can't do that we're really bad at, you know? And, you know, you know, I mean, just like, think about the human race, you know, like, why do we continuously like slaughter each other? I mean, like, we don't want to. And then, and you know, oh, let's have another war. I mean, like we're not really that able. <laughs> we, have, <laughs> we have these wonderful abilities, but like we're just a, we're a mixture of both abilities and disabilities, and we all are. Um, and I find it really interesting that people like you know, twenty percent of the American population is labeled disabled, and that which means you know that eighty percent is what. Like what do we call yeah the not disabled at this moment in time? It's it's interesting to me, um it's fascinating to me, and so anyway I don't I don't mind the term disability anymore, and I tell people my son is disabled without a second thought, um, and then many people
0: isn't a functional way- thing. At some point you just have, like look I part of, and you describe in great detail some of the bureaucracy you have to deal with. It just as a parent of a child that has certain developmental challenges and things that, that you ju- like you just can't function in the world without getting used to it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you need to use that label in order to just to deal with the way we've, we've set things up. Absolutely. Um, and, but it is funny because most people who work in the field of disability um, or a good deal of them, when you ask them for a definition of disability, there's like this, uh, and then we usually always end up saying, oh, we're all disabled. Like, <laughs> you know, like, it's like this thing that people who work with disabilities understand that, that we're all disabled and, and those that, you know, just aren't really focused on that haven't got there yet. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I wrote this book for people who haven't been dwelling on disability because they fit into the world enough that they don't need extra help. And yeah, like um, if, I, if I have
0: intimacy issues or chronic anxiety and as a result, spend a, a, a bunch of time self-medicating or something like with so many people like but, yeah, but I can present as able, you right. know, nine to five and in certain social settings. So yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. who, who isn't, <laughs> who doesn't need help?
1: Yeah, exactly. And we're we are so used to kind of hiding our what we're bad at or you know, what we're embarrassed about. You know, like we, we there's so much shame around not being a kind of ridiculously competent person. <laughs> I guess in some ways having Felix has been really liberating because I just like <laughs> I I know how incompetent I am. I know and I'm not embarrassed about it anymore. Like I can just I mean, sometimes I am, you know, because you're in a setting where you just, it makes you nervous and stuff like that. But in my head, at least, and in my, in most of the environments I travel through, um, I feel much more at home in the world because of him. Um, just because, and I, I often find myself, um, feeling more kindly towards other people than I used to because I hmm. see us all as kind of struggling with all of our individual, um,
0: Disabilities. That's beautiful, and you actually you you talk about in the beginning of the book how his conception was uh, as a result of nine eleven, which yeah, a, a lot of children were conceived in the in the wake of nine eleven. I mean, that was that's yeah. a common story I've heard from many people. But you also, I I was moved by the way you describe connecting. Sort of courting and connecting with your husband Jason, because it sounds like you two came from different worlds.
1: we did in many ways um, on the other hand, I felt instantly at home with him, like on our first date we were we were walking around the reservoir in in Central Park, and he was talking about some completely boring financial transaction. I was, it was my fault. <laughs> I had asked him, I I knew nothing about finance. And so I was like, so what is a personal holding structure or something like that? And he was trying to explain, or maybe he was explaining the difference between bonds and stocks. I don't know, but it was, it was just technical and soul crushing stuff. But, um, but I didn't, that was just such a tiny little, we're kind of wavelet of sound, and the the main thing was I just had all the, I just was walking next to him, and I liked walking next to him, and I could feel that I had more air in my lungs. I mean, I just felt at home with him, and I, I it was just immediate. Um, and it just didn't matter that he worked in finance. Yeah, and you know,
0: he, and, and he he comes off in the in the time that you write about him in the book, he, he comes off. It's very. Capable and competent, but also a gentle soul. Yeah. At least with Felix, her son. I mean, that's and that's mostly um, the uh, that come to mind the most vivid pictures. He seemed like he seems like a very calming and yeah. caring soul. He
1: is. and
0: Which is exactly what would make you want to go be a lawyer in New York. I mean, that's, what, <laughs> that's usually what they say. Are you calm and caring and compassionate? Because that is what we're looking for. <laughs> Big law exactly. firms, baby
1: he <laughs> actually honestly his law firm is is a pretty humane place strangely enough but um but i think that felix clearly brought out the kindness and gentleness in jason like had we had a different kind of son what if we had a son who was like a super jock and wanted to be a football player then we would have developed in different ways. You know, your children do uh, direct your lives quite a bit and open up parts of you that haven't been opened up yet. So Felix, you know, clearly shown a light on on the patience and gentleness and um, endurance that Jason has.
0: And you talk about being pregnant and getting chicken pox. <laughs> that was and fun. And how there's this and there, and that's where some of the revelations about some developmental abnormalities come to light and some of the i mean it, it, the anxiety right about like what how did this happen what's going to happen i mean it, it it is that i mean it's interesting cuz none of us is certain about anything in life although i guess we we get up in the morning and get ourselves to bed like convincing us that we are certain things will be the same but like sometimes you have experiences that bring to light how fragile reality is and how you have absolutely no control over anything. And it seems like for you that the chickenpox, the getting the seeing some developmental things showing up uh, in tests bring to light, like the, the the sense of, okay, I, I, I can't control this.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I remember feeling like, why, what is it about uncertainty when we're always in the midst of uncertainty? But why, when we're confronted with it, is it so exhausting? You know, it's just so hard to, you know, continue breathing calmly and do what needs to be done and greet your neighbors um, because of this kind of pulsing uncertainty. It's a mystery to me. I mean, like, because it's always there. Um, but, you know, when, when you when you are confronted with it, uh, it's... It affects your whole body. It's just, a, it's a real, but it also there's a certain clarity, I suppose, that comes with it too. I, I, in any, yeah. in, a, in any case, I, I, I had this. What, what, what happened was that I had a very strong connection with Felix when he was still inside. You know, after around, you know, by around four months, he really took on this personality inside me, and I wasn't deeply. I mean, I was not uncertain about that. I, I felt him and I felt that he was okay. Um and you know, at the time I think I would have you know, if if, if you if someone had said, Oh, what do you mean he's okay, he's he's not gonna be able to walk or talk, I then I would have been like, Oh, I'm you know, maybe I messed up, maybe I wasn't um feeling things correctly. But at now, at this time with fourteen years of living with him, um I think I was right. He was okay. You know, it's like, he wasn't, he's not like you and me, but he's got a really, he's a great person and he's really, you know, he's really affected a lot of people more so than, you know, more so than me. Like he's, there's probably 200 people, you know, that he's, he's touched on a deep level. Um, and he's only 14.
0: You you talk about when a doctor early on confronts you with the option of terminating the pregnancy. And I, I was very moved. It's not a very long section, but it, I was very moved by the candor with which you write there. And I mean, I feel like, you know, people talk about abortion in our culture and it's one of these kind of uh, hot button megaphone issues you talk about actually just saying, "Look, if there's a five percent chance he's going to be fine, why would I not take that chance?" I mean, you had this very—it uh, it, it, uh, it, was—it's so, so existential, yeah—and depoliticized.
1: Yeah, no, I, I certainly—I'm—I um, um, mean, I'm a pro-choice voter. I, I mean, I, I think that abortion should be legal and safe for everyone, uh, and I think that that's morally and ethically, you know very much where I stand, but, um, but I guess I had decided that I wanted to have a baby with Jason and I had a baby.
0: Hmm. Like
1: the idea of saying, I only want to have a baby that's, you know, like this seemed wrong to me.
0: Yeah. And I I think that's, I I, it. it, The, the concreteness of that is very beautiful. And,
1: and it's a very... It's it's a very personal thing. I mean, I don't mean by saying, you know, I wouldn't. I'm not judging other parents who choose differently. Uh, But it was a very that was clear to me that Felix was alive and okay and had decided to come to us, and I wasn't going to stop him because of some weird tests.
0: You say something too that that struck me when I read it. That you you talk about like how Jason could quiet. Uh, Felix in ways that you couldn't, and early on dealing with the fact that, like, in some ways, he just preferred Jason's like comfort oh, yeah. to yours. And he he totally, to, yeah.
1: he, he completely, um, he he loved Jason above all others, and then, <laughs> it, was, it was it was very clear.
0: <laughs> and you said that, you said that by your early twenties, I'd learned to conduct my love life on the principle of equality, i.e., pride. If a person did not want to be with me, I did not want to be with him. The moment a boyfriend's interest waned, I'd leave lickety split but I wasn't allowed to leave Felix. And you talk about sort of the, the kind of um, <laughs> non, the, I guess the incapability of loving him in a detached way. Yeah. And, 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 and as opposed to what had become a regular practice for you in romance in your 20s.
1: <laughs> it, yeah, it was really hard. It was it was really hard on my... Uh, I mean, I was like, humili- he humiliated me. And it's interesting because, you know, the love you have for your child isn't supposed to be romantic. And it, it's not. I mean, I don't want to like marry Felix. But some of that, you know, the jealousy and feeling of, you know, being miffed that... <laughs> You know, the uh, at at not quite reciprocal love. I mean, that, that was definitely there. And I mean, it, basically it just became funny after a while. And I also like, I knew that Felix did love me. You know, it wasn't that he hated me if, if, or he was completely neutral to me, that would have been terrible. I, that would, I don't know how I would have handled that. And I think that some parents do have that kind of, um, burden and that's just so hard, but, um, but Felix always did like me. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a good time and now these days actually I actually wrote a little essay about this recently he's been really like giving me some good love and kind of making Jason jealous and I mean so it's like <laughs> he's he's manip- like, he's just learned how to manipulate people really well. Um, and it's funny.
0: Now he's in a residential school now, Felix. Yeah. Yeah. Do Do you miss him on the day to day? I mean, is that is that a hard? I mean, I, I know you guys yeah. regularly go there and rent.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm speaking from his to, school right now. Yeah. Is, is
0: that Is that hard to not be um, be with him in the day to day?
1: Yes and no. I I guess um, he is so much better off here, and he's so much happier, and they can do so much more with him that like there's not any part of me that wants him home because his, the quality of his life would really um, shrink quickly and he'd be angry and furious and, and we'd all kind of spiral down into that mess that we were in. Um, And I love visiting him here, but there is definitely like I spend, I get to, I'm so lucky. I get to spend almost all summer up here in New Hampshire with him and my daughters And, um, and we see him almost every day and we see him in like this kind of idyllic way where we're like swimming in a pond or going for ice cream or, you know, just, it's just like the two hours of the day that you're just kind of kicking back and relaxing. And it's just lovely. And, um, you know, when we drive back to Brooklyn at the end of the summer, uh, it's so hard. I mean, it's a, it's a real, it's really a painful transition getting back into just kind of, you know, girls go off to school. Jason goes to work. I go to work. And Felix is up there in New Hampshire. Um, yeah. It's, it's, there's an ache.
0: It's interesting. Cause I, I was interviewing somebody a few months ago talking about how college today, the whole issue of like safe spaces and people don't feel like they should be anxious in college. And they're saying <laughs> that sort of, we extend adolescence, uh, you know, into the twenties, like, you know, and, Kids like it because, hey, I don't have to grow up yet. And parents like it because I don't have to lose my kid yet.
1: Yeah. Right. And, and yeah. lose
0: them to, you know, autonomy. And so on some level, it's what you had to do, just an earlier version of what yeah. every parent has to do to let go for flourishing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And he really is flourishing. I mean, he he can have a more independent life here than he could at home. Um cause he has like 24 hour AIDS and they are really just there to help him live as independently as he can. Um, and he's, you know, he's surrounded by people who understand him in a deeper way than most people do. So he is flourishing. I'm really grateful. And I should say that this is a, it's a private nonprofit, but it's mainly funded by Medicaid. So, you know, all of this discussion that, or, (laughs) To put a nice word on it, that we're having in the country right now, you know, it it, that's it completely affects people like my son, but also all of the people that work to make his life as good as it is. They're all being paid by things like Medicaid.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting too because I guess in earlier in in previous eras, you, I mean, we're we're just able to make connections, right? Like, so that I mean, this memoir is incredibly powerful, right? And then something like Medicaid doesn't just become like a, some kind of federal program. It's actually a means by which somebody who has a unique set of um, abilities a, and, and challenges can flourish. Yeah. Right. And so who doesn't, you know, in, in, in that terms, what person, wherever your politics are, what person doesn't think that we ought to share the burden so that we all know, I mean, so, so that th- those stories can, a uh, flourishing can happen.
1: Uh, well, and the other thing is that, you know, the, the money that doesn't go to helping these kids goes to incarcerating them. I mean, Mm-mm. like if you look at who's in jail and who's in JV, it, the the statistics vary, but it's like basically from 60% to 100% of kids in JV have some kind of disability. Um, and if you think about the quality of like just employment, like who's going to be happier, a prison guard or an aide trying to help a child? You know, like it's it's not just about the children. It's about our whole society, all these communities that grow up around these institutions you can choose Mm -hmm. to have institutions that bring out the best in us, or you can choose to have institutions that bring out the worst. It's a choice we make, but like we're going to be paying for these children no matter what, because they can't, you know, they can't get by in our society without some help.
0: Is it hard as a parent of a child with a certain set of needs? Like, I mean, you, you talk about just the gladiatorial process of affording tuition <laughs> right like i mean like, and you, and new,
1: york, new york city is particularly awful like i mean let me just say like being in new hampshire you know it's it's nice like there's there's a lot more space and more room and more equity you know into other part in some other parts of the country
0: well why um, why new york? i mean why is new york <sighs> think of new york as a pretty progressive place and
1: it's just the, it's the cost of real estate. Okay. It just really, it just screws everything up. Like just to rent, uh, you know, a tiny room is 6,000 a month. Mm. And so, you know, it just like, it makes it really hard. First of all, it makes it really hard to do any kind of school or business, but then like also you have to find, you have to pay for people and they have to be able to pay our rent. I mean, it it just unfortunately has to do with the cost of living in some of these cities is beyond belief.
0: I wanted to take a quick break from my conversation with Eliza Factor, which we'll return to in just a moment, to thank a few of you, my sponsors, Leia Paulos, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan Morseberger, and Josh Redder. Thank you all for being my Patreon sponsors. If you want to sponsor this podcast and help keep this content that you enjoy coming out, please just go to patreon.forward slash Scott Kent Jones and there you can find information about how to give. If you give just five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on this podcast and help develop some future podcast projects that will be unfolding in the future. Thanks again to my sponsors. And please, if you like this podcast, consider becoming a Patreon sponsor. And now back to my conversation with Eliza Factor. You know, you talk about in a section, in a chapter called Squiddish, you say this, um, you talk about being with another mother and him not being able to do some basic things that as a, as a small child, he should be like, sit up and things like that. And you said, His eyes glaze over his expression slack, his head so heavy that my arm ached from supporting it. What is the opposite of revelation? A feeling that plunges you into despair, a sinking emptiness followed by a hot well of shame. I could no longer see his beauty. I was embarrassed at his lumpy, strange body. And you talk about how the other parents are laughing, but you you just feel this heaviness. I was so struck when I read that, when you said you described it as the feeling is the opposite. What's the opposite of revelation? Why did you choose that? A term like revelation is a really interesting term to contrast what you were feeling at that moment.
1: Yeah. I think it's because Felix so often works in my life as a revelation. Um, and by revelation, I mean a kind of re... A reawakening of wonder at life and that we're here. I mean, it's yeah. Like,
0: yeah, yeah the, it's the, a the, miracle, the, 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 right? The etymology, and, right, uh, yeah. uh, apocalypto, right, in Greek is, is unveiling. It's actually, yeah. uh, Revelation's an unveiling, a tearing yeah. away of the curtain.
1: He's, he's continuously doing that for me on so many different levels. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons I miss him. Like, it's like, he's like this shining, I mean, sometimes the revelations aren't pretty, but, you know, nevertheless, he's like a, a volcano or a, a Nova. I mean, like he's just continuously um, giving me these truths. Um, but at that moment, that was not what I was feeling. I was feeling that kind of social heaviness that we get caught up in.
0: Yeah. And you say on the next page, if almost all children are at some point ashamed of their parents, perhaps it is inevitable that almost all parents are also at some point ashamed of their offspring. At that, at the time, however, I treasured her comment because it is, it, it interwove Jason in my experience with everyone else's. We're not that different. We were just getting it all at once. It was the first time a friend since said something that helped.
1: Oh yes, that's that's when my friend Jenny said, um, "You're getting what was it?" She said, "The the parenthood all at once."
0: Right. Yeah. That, yeah. That's yeah just the, such it, a
1: great phrase.
0: And she said, "Of course you should want him to sit like that." I mean, she normalized some of your desires, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, what were some of the things that people said that were not helpful?
1: It's, you know, I don't think it's really, I don't think it's really the words. It's just, um, I, 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 yeah, my friend Stephanie Zadrovac, who has two kids with disabilities was like saying, you know, there's just nothing you can say for a while. (laughs) Like you can't make, like the parents have to kind of get through this initial shock that, you know. Their child is gonna is going down this route that you wouldn't have chosen for your child, um, and when you're just when you're orienting yourself in that direction, it, almost everything everyone says is wrong. So it's not like there's a golden thing. I guess I guess what what helps is things that um, that that breaks down that us them divide. Like like Jenny's thing was just like you're just you know every parent has to deal with you know, perhaps, you know, fear of death and, um, and all of these kind of big things at some point in the, in the course of being a parent. But usually when they're first born um, you're more just learning how to keep somebody alive. And so the, the, the more painful parts um, aren't as prevalent. And so, so, I mean, that comment was just kind of bringing us into the fold. And I guess, Um, comments that are like, oh, I'm so sorry are kind of like pushing you away into this, um, this kind of Island of families to be pitied. I mean, nobody, nobody wants pity. So I suppose that kind of like sympathy that kind of veers towards pity is, is something I would, I would counsel people.
0: Did did you, (laughs) did you, did you you experience people just avoiding you because of the complexity of the situation? And, um, yeah, I mean,
1: there, there, but partly that was me too. Like, I, I didn't really want to, you know, I was exhausted. I didn't want to tell everybody this is what the doctor said today. I just wanted to, you know, take a nap. I, you know, like, I, like to try to explain to people exactly what was going on back then would have, I, I couldn't have. I didn't have the, um, like all of my energy was focused on, doing what needed to be done for Felix and staying awake because I wasn't getting any sleep. And so like to have a half an hour to patiently explain to somebody this test or that test would have just been ridiculous. So I think that, you know, some of that isolation, it's not from other people. It's, it's also from yourself. You know, it's, it's, I'm lucky in that I have a a lovely family and, and good friends. I didn't, I never felt, um, shunned because of Felix, um, at least by close people. There is was, there was definitely like people on the sidewalk and stuff that look away, but that's, you know,
0: that's just life. I, I was really, something that stands out in my mind is you talk about how you paid $1,200 during one battery of tests later. I mean, it, this is several years after Felix is born, I think, right? And a doctor confirmed that, yeah, it, th- this is probably something that had to do with the chicken pox that you contracted. And you're like, it was $1,200 incredibly well spent because it wasn't this glass of wine I had one night in my head, or this night that yeah. well, I took because I, I couldn't sleep or that somehow there was, there was a, like a disambiguation or something there that was somehow liberating.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I had felt, obviously I was scared when I had the chicken pox and I had written that poem about Felix being floppy when I was recovering from the Chickenpox, and, but the doctors, um, you know, they need to be careful about saying you know, causation and stuff because they're scientists and stuff like that. It's they, so they, they could, nobody could say, Oh, it's because of the chickenpox that Felix is exactly this way. Um, but I had that kind of feeling as a mother that it probably was. And I kind of pushed that aside because I, you know, want to be, rigorous. And, um, and when, when this fancy doctor, um, said, well, it probably was the chicken pox. I mean, that's, you know, the varicella virus is associated with the kind of brain damage he has. It was, it did come as a relief, like that some of my personal kind of body feelings, um, jibed with, uh, you know, fancy Columbia doctor. Um, I, I think at a certain point you just need to go on. Like you can't, be blaming yourself or others. or So in that, in that way, that just was like, okay, just close that door. <laughs> let's, let's move on. And I mean, let's help Felix as he is. And uh, that it gave me that, that, that uh, feeling that it, it wasn't, I, I could move on because I had this, this kind of guy in the white lab suit saying, yeah, you can move on. Let's call it the chickenpox. Let's keep going.
0: It's so funny because, In pre-modern times, that person would be in white vestments doing something sacramental or something and giving you absolution. Yeah, (laughs) So it's a sort of kind of modern priesthood, right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Well, I mean, there's a very close um, connection between medicine and religion.
0: Yeah, Yeah, and it's interesting that you, there's a section of the book, a chapter called The Devil's Shriek, where he, where Felix, he is hitting himself. He's obviously... Deeply distraught, he's shrieking out in pain, and you have to really grapple with a set of decisions about medications and things. And and this, you know, it, it kind of it seems to subside and reassert itself, right? So yeah, when that happens, is 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 it kind of does it take away the sigh from the? subsiding like once it comes back again or, or are you just so relieved that he's not in pain and that you're not weary from trying to you know, alleviate it and just bearing the brunt of it I mean how how is that living in between the times of those flare-ups
1: oh well I'm, I'm so glad we have three children I think that's my answer to you um because There is this kind of post-traumatic stress you carry around with you, even when everything's going really well. Um, the, ah, he could, he could start hitting himself at any moment. Like Jason and I to this day will hear a ambulance, um, siren that, you know, there's a particular tone that's similar to, that shriek that Felix would do. And we'll just kind of like our whole bodies will just tense and we'll be like, ah, start it started again. <laughs> Even if like, you know, we're in another city. Um, but having three kids did really like, there's just a lot to focus on, you know, like Felix is good now. And okay, this is a good time to, you know, take Miranda to the dentist. <laughs> you know, you just, there's a lot going on. And so you focus on, on, you know what needs to be dealt with, and it, it helps. I think if it, if it was if it was just Felix, probably the anxiety um, in those lulls would have been greater.
0: Do do you find yourself? I, I mean, I think every parent probably has to learn how to forgive themselves, right? For because yeah. we're limited. I mean, do you well, think... every person it, right? We're right every person right. <laughs> they just learn how to forgive that if you have any chance at living and loving. But is that more acute in? parenting a child with uh, some s- real special needs or or, or or do you think you learned the lesson earlier <laughs>
1: uh i don't yeah i mean i don't know about the forgiveness i mean i i wouldn't i wouldn't want to generalize i do feel like i'm older because of felix in a good way i mean <laughs> i've got a lot of aches and pains too but but i mean i do feel
0: um like you've learned lessons that I've learned a, it, uh, yeah people don't as, learn until later sometimes. Yeah,
1: exactly. I'm not as afraid of aging myself. I mean it kind of goes back to seeing the disability in everyone like as we get older we all become more disabled that's just what age, you know, that's what aging is. Um and that doesn't scare me as much anymore. Um, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I know that like like i've like had you know just like i st- we st- felix is never going to be toilet trained right so i'm like i'm used to cleaning somebody's bum um at, who has a total adult body at this point so like the idea of that happening to me if it's like it's just part of life i just it doesn't it doesn't freak me out as my daughter miranda would say um like i'm sure it would if uh if, if I didn't have Felix and things just went more smoothly, I, that's probably not what you're asking about with the forgiveness. Well, but, um, well,
0: no, I mean, I think it's <laughs> profound. I mean, I, no, I, I think like the school of suffering, right. Is, is something that does, I mean, there is something that, that a kind of acceptance that it does seem lead to a kind of healthy maturity. Right. I mean, uh, like not just calendar maturity, but.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that Felix is very good at that. Um, but he, you know, that's—it's not necessarily just because he's disabled. It's also because of the person he is. You know, I mean, that's this is the thing we're all. And he's got a lot of humor and um, charisma and bravery that I've learned from. Yeah, you know, whatever you're... that may be that may because of his disabilities or those things. Those things may have been given. It's the, his disabilities may have worked like a fertilizer for those. Parts of his spirit that are so admirable, um
0: yeah, your au pair says one night you you you're kind of yeah. lying there, and I think the dog's at your feet and, and you know it's oh like yeah a and I was, day. we were
1: we were exhausted, i was like I was pregnant with um my third daughter at the time, like majorly exhausted, pregnant, and Miranda was two, and um Felix. <laughs> Was like a wonderfully rambunctious five year old at that moment, and and we had this crazy dog. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> I love that description of the dog. I love that dog. Uh, I love I'm the description glad, of the yes, dog.
1: I, I Oscar. Like Oscar the dog. Anyway, it was the end. It was the, the end of the, one of these days, and I, you know, I felt like you know here, Bruna came from Brazil to like see New York, and I was had been a babysitter myself, I didn't want to like just kind of turn into this terribly oppressive employer, but she was like a real hard worker and kept on wanting to do things. And I was like, Oh my God, you know, she'd been working like for 11 hours or something that day, you know, pushing Felix all over of creation, dealing with city buses, doctors. I mean, like, you know, just a whole lot of stuff. And we were just kind of collapsed um, in the living room, too tired to make dinner. And, and she had th- these droopy eyelids and sh- she said, me, oh, you know, mom. And I thought she was going to be like, I'm so tired. I can't stand up. Can we just, you know, <laughs> can we forget about dinner or something like that? And she said, we all think we do so much for Felix, but he does even more for us. <laughs> I was like, holy shit. How did she figure that out? She's 21 years old. She, he's not even her son. And, and she saw that.
0: Yeah, I mean, sometimes when you describe his effect on the family, it's almost like um, sunlight with, you know, like photo, like sunlight and, and rain with a flower. Yeah, like kind of that's an open, nice. opening up of you all in ways yeah. that are that are really beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, thank you for your account of it. This is incredibly. I mean, I, I he's still probably having that effect through people yeah. that have never met him. Through your writing, which is incredibly moving, um, see so, so in the beginning of the book, you, uh, like I imagine you as this pretty bohemian like young woman, right and yeah I, I don't think you imagined yourself as sort of starting nonprofits, doing organizational <laughs> no. leadership and all these things, but you actually wind up in that role and, and, yeah. and are pretty successful at it.
1: Yeah. That's another thing that's totally, <laughs> that's <an> all Felix. <laughs> I mean, I really, the idea of doing public speaking, um, when I was younger, I mean, I just can't imagine something I would have wanted to do less. Um, but he really, he, 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 there was a, there was a need, um, for, for extreme kids. And, um, and once I started, working towards it, I got so, I mean, there was so much enthusiasm from all over uh, New York city from like from families and also from, you know, social workers and stuff that really understood the need for it that I couldn't really stop. And then once people started coming in and I met all these other children with disabilities and their parents and these just great families that all were living under very different Conditions and their kids had you know very different bodies and minds than Felix, but we all had shared this um kind of love and wonder and frustration um of having these kids that just so radically didn't fit in to our world and um to see the joy when all of these people came together was just like a fuel, and it just um it it allowed me to do a lot of stuff that I would not have ever imagined earlier in my life.
0: And Felix was like a star. Some of the it sounds yeah. like some of these photo shoots. Like he kind of yeah. <laughs> it sounds like he responded with like a kind of magnetism and electricity to yeah, the to I spotlight.
1: Know. I mean, this is the guy that like will not talk to a teacher. Like we only like could like quantify that he understands language at this school when he was like twelve because he finally like kind of condescended to, you know, use a iPad um for a little bit. But but like a photographer will come over and be like, "Hey, Felix, give me a smile," and he'll you know he like (laughs) it lights up. Um, So yeah, I think and and Felix has been proud of Extreme Kids, Uh, even though you know he doesn't necessarily enjoy everything we do. Like he likes to he'll 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 enjoy himself um, at the sensory gym for. 45 minutes but then he wants to go out whereas a lot of the other kids just kind of want to stay there for a four hour session but he he's still like he I think he understands that it's because of him that this it happened and he takes quite a bit of pride in it
0: yeah you also one of the things that I found incredibly moving and insightful and I mean I, I've been to seminary I did graduate work in theology so like I've you know
1: yeah, uh, I noticed I'm I'm fascinated by um, <laughs> by your your list of people you talked to. I I am going to listen to all of these podcasts eventually. Well, that's
0: I mean, that's very <laughs> that you're incredibly kind to say. it. But um you have a section called religion and I was so moved. Uh you talk about seeing his little tired frail body and seeing the image of a crucifix and and you, you talk about as in this chapter your uncle Cam and you don't come from a religious particular religious family and your uncle cam had stayed to, to become a priest. It became a priest and it, it kind of astounded your family. Right. And, he, and you write this, um, that as you're thinking about all this suffering, your question is at the very root of religion and it's all as language itself. Uh, the image was telling you, this is the thing about Felix who else, but he could have torn me so open to see an image of Christ in my living room. Yeah. What what's more and quite marvelously that image did exactly what such images are supposed to do it healed it gave me the strength to get up off that couch kneel beside felix take off his gloves love him again grieve for him again hope for him again then get back to the business of wiping the blood off the rug and figuring out what to make for dinner in the longer run it let me appreciate the religion of my ancestors in a way i had not been able to before I now take those crosses and crucifixes as an acknowledgement of the ineluctable fundamental suffering that runs through life right along with joy and beauty. You cannot expunge this suffering, but you can let it in and share it. And it does help to know that you're not alone, that you, I, all of us are in good company.
1: (sighs) That makes me cry all over again.
0: (laughs) The profundity there is... I mean, yeah, I, I think that that is so much of the best of any kind of spiritual transcendent journey, right? Yeah. That, that people are trying to make sense of of this, and not and hold on to the joy and the beauty, like that. That all these things can can be part of, um, can make up. <laughs> The title, "A Strange Beauty." <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes,
1: right. it is about all of us. You're right. You started this with, with pointing out that this is just the story of people, and and I, I told that's exactly what I intend intended with the writing. I mean, the story of. I mean, we all come through. Uh, we, all of us, in our different ways, are are going to have to face incredible suffering, and uh, and there's just a lot of fear around that because nobody wants to. Um, but it and, and and the stories are different, but but that's the fundamental story: is oh God, this how can this beauty, how can there's all this love also contain this agony?
0: Mm, you know, hmm. there's this book I have on my desk. Um, it's like always on my desk it's called clinical theology it's a psychiatrist in the 60s who wrote this book trying to kind of put spirituality and psychiatry in conversation with each other uh and one of the things he says in it is that um that when we sort of like look at our humanity as a bucket that ought to have a bunch of good things in it you know and, and we you know <laughs> yeah or a cupboard that ought to have all our good china and we look inevitably there. oftentimes the cupboard is bare you know um They said, but we let the bottom get knocked out of our humanity. It ruins it as a bucket or container, but makes it a great channel for real vital life-giving spiritual energy that we're not Mm -hmm. meant to be buckets, but channels of, and it sounds like Felix has taught you how to be a channel in some deep ways.
1: I mean, I think, I think often what Felix has done is. It goes back to feeling older and also younger. He's, I mean, I'm lucky to have a, a good memory of my childhood, like young, young childhood. I think that's one of the reasons I became a writer. Um, but he has actually allowed me almost to inhabit the sensory world of my childhood, which I, I couldn't do so much before I came along. Like, I mean, to the point where, like, I feel the life of trees like I did as a child. like. Can you hear me? You know, like this, just the, 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 the life around me is so uh, pulsing. And I think it, a lot of it's because of just living with someone who's primarily nonverbal. You're not relying on language and you're really just taking in the body. Um, and then you really, you know, there's also the body of a blade of grass or the butterfly and everything. You, and you take that stuff in, you get a lot of information. Um, and I think that older people, go back to that, you know, that's that whole circle of life. Like you get old enough, you, you become a baby again. You're like kind of, hmm. uh, you know, you're, you, cause, cause the kind of social grid that we're, we're involved in from like schools through employment or jail or whatever it is. I mean, the kind of those, those big institutions that we live in as Americans um, from five to 75 or whatever it is uh really, they're necessary for our economy and everything, but they're but they're just they, they focus on such a very thin layer of existence and um, being with someone who like Felix is like kind of brings back all of that stuff that's in you, but you just have kind of put on hold for a while because you have to pay taxes and get you know health insurance and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, you get back to the sense of wonder, right? It's I, I, yeah. It's like the difference between a four-year-old and a fourteen-year-old at the zoo.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like four-year-olds exactly. don't think
0: there just should be elephants. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah I, it's yeah, yeah.
0: Liza, thank you for writing this book and for spending some time talking with me.
1: Thank you so much for this conversation and for reading the book in the way that you did.
0: Hey, the pleasure was all mine. And we'll have you back to talk about your novels sometime.
1: Excellent. Wonderful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you so much.
1: All right. Bye, Scott
0: thanks for listening to give and take if you like what you heard please do a couple things for me they are so helpful if you do them share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say hey this is great check it out spread the love and goodness if you found it here also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, give and You can find all the information there. And please do check out Eliza Factors. Strange Beauty, I promise you, you will not regret it. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, fare thee well.